Well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you this morning. And I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading from verses 11 to 15, which should sound familiar to a number of you, those of you who were here last week, because I preached on the same passage last week. But last week I was looking at verses 11 and 12, and this week I will be focusing on verses 13, 14, and 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy pastor at the church of Ephesus, at least on an interim basis. He's been talking about worship, worship as it relates to men, worship as it relates to women, and in verse 11, he picks up from there. He said, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, rather she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we make our way through Paul's amazing letter to Timothy, we come to this portion of his book, this passage, which is so highly contested in our time. And I just ask you to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I had mentioned this last week as we went into the passage, just how debated uh, and how controversial these words of the Apostle Paul are within the church, not just outside the church. And within the church, certainly in the last 30 years or so. And the reason that it's so controverted is because it's clear. Because what Paul is saying is so plain and unambiguous. There are parts of these verses that are subject to different interpretation or you know, questions of, of what Paul was meaning. But there's really not much question about what he was saying when he said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. And I realize that to many it strikes them as offensive. I mean, saying no to a position of authority for women strikes us as inherently wrong and unjust, especially today. As an example of a prejudice, a prejudice against women that enlightened people should be fighting against. And I want to observe this morning, as we move into this text, that Paul would not have written as he did with such a kind of abrupt urgency, except that there were clearly objectors within the church in his own day as well. And maybe they objected for the same reason. Maybe they objected for for other reasons. I don't know. But clearly Paul was speaking or writing as he did, not because he was writing to people who would uniformly receive what he said, but because they would contest it. So he was writing very firmly. He wasn't writing to cheer on the church. He was writing to correct the church. And Paul explained this, I think, in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, his whole purpose, when he said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. You sense the urgency of this. I want you to have this now. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and buttress 
of the truth. And the issue in this letter is that God's good order, the order of his, of his household, of his family, is being disrupted at Ephesus. And he's writing Timothy to set things right, to set things straight in many different areas. Now, I'm not going to recount all the points I made last week from verses 11 and 12, but I will just summarize, make a couple comments for you before we go into 13, 14, and 15. I'd like to point out to you that Paul is not restricting women from praying. He's not restricting women from prophesying or providing testimony in public worship. He's not restricting women from providing men with wise counsel, biblical counsel, as, as Priscilla, along with Aquila, provided Apollos with wise counsel. The context, the setting for Paul's comments is the gathering of God's people for worship. It's the, it's the ordering of God's family apart from their individual homes when they come together. That is, the, that is the setting. The conduct in view here is women preaching to or teaching men or exercising authority over men, which I understand to be disciplining as well as discipling, not teaching, discipling, not, not disciplining, not ruling over men. And the content then is God's word. So you look at the context, you look at the conduct, you look at the, the content, and you see that in fact uh, Paul is speaking to something I think quite specific here. But this brings us today to the two why questions. Why is God's household to be ordered this way? And why should it matter to us today? What's at stake in this for us? And I'm going to take these two why questions in their order. First of all, why is God's household to be ordered in this way? And I think the answer to that is verses 13 and 14. That's Paul's answer. It begins with four. This is why he does not permit a woman to lead or exercise authority over man. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul here is speaking about two things. He's speaking about Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Paul's talking about the creation, how, he, how God created man, humanity, and then he's talking about the nature of the fall. When he says Adam was formed first, then Eve, he's talking about the creation. This is Paul's sort of abbreviated summary statement of creation. He does not assume, and as he writes Timothy, that he has to explain his teaching on creation to Timothy. He's reminding Timothy of the creation. It, it's, a, it's a summary statement, to be sure. He's talking about how God created us. And it's interesting that in using the term formed, when he said that Adam was formed first, Paul chose the verb that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He used the verb that was used in Genesis 2-7 for God forming Adam from the dust of the ground. He is talking about the creation. And of course, he's reminding us all that when God created everything, he created everything very good. And particularly with respect to humanity, Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. In his own image, he created man. Male and female, he created them. And the image of God in his creation of humanity includes, it's not, uh, this doesn't include everything, but it includes plurality within unity, 
male and female, distinct persons and shared being, equal glory and honor, and the beginning of one, the beginning of one from the other. As the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, so God created or formed woman from the man. And God's commissioning of Adam to name other creatures then extended to her as well. He named her woman. And in both Hebrew and in English, the term for woman is derived from our word for man. Woman, ish, man, isha, woman. And the term is derived, for the female is derived from the term for the male to memorialize the truth that God made her from him. And when he did that, God exalted, Adam rather, exalted. He said, this is at last the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Adam understood the reality of that. He understood the implication of that, the truth behind it, the meaning of it for him. He was to love and care for her. He was to look after her as his own body. And Paul draws on, draws on this explicitly, doesn't he? In Ephesians 5, when he instructs husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. Well, Adam understood that he was to love Eve. But there was more to it than that. Not only did God form woman from the man, he formed woman for him. He formed her, created her, rather, for him. To be a helpmate suitable for him. In fact, if you bring together the whole truth of Genesis 2, it goes this way in the creation of the woman. That God formed her from him, and for him, and then presented her to him. Now when you think about that, what God did in creating Eve, and how he created her, and why he did, and how he then presented her to Adam, who do you think God was holding responsible for Eve's welfare? And the answer is Adam. Adam was responsible. He was triply responsible for her. She came from him. He was to regard her as part of her, his own body. For him. A gift from God to him. Presented by God himself. He was obligated. Not just to Eve. He was obligated to God for Eve's welfare. His fundamental obligation was to God. If I present you with something of precious and valuable, beautiful, that I've made just for you. Well, you're to take care of that, aren't you? And if you don't take care of it, if you don't look after it, if you don't, if you don't preserve it, if you don't treat it with respect, if you don't protect it, it says something about how you view the giver. Because the worth of the gift in the eyes of the one who's received the gift is the value they place on the giver. And if Adam's responsibility was to be expressed in no other way, he was very at least, he was at the very least, at the very least, to lead her in worship, in devotion, 
gratitude to God. And that leadership includes protection. It includes guarding her. And to say when I do that Adam was at the very least leader in these ways, to say that now we're talking about the roles of a man and the roles of a woman, I think to talk about, to say we're talking about roles is to trivialize what the scripture says. Adam was not being given a role to play. He was being given a sovereign responsibility. And when we speak of man and we speak of woman at creation, we're not talking about roles. We are talking about identity. We are talk about, we're talking about callings in virtue of how God created us. The truth is that apart, apart from God, apart from his word, we cannot understand who we are. We can't understand who we are in relation to God. We cannot understand who we are in relation to ourselves, whether as man or as woman. We don't find our true identity apart from God. We lose it. Dr. J.I. Packer has written, this is a quote, that the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. This is part of the reality of creation. A given fact that nothing will change. Certainly redemption will not change it. For grace restores nature. It does not abolish it. He wrote that some, I don't know, maybe perhaps 30 years ago. But into what a gruesome, moral quagmire we are now immersed. With a contention that male-female relationships are or should be fully reversible. In fact, flip-floppable. You can be male one day, you can be a female the next day, because it does not matter. And it does not matter, not only justifies permitting the individual to choose what he or she wants, but it does not matter also, also justifies coercion to all others who who would disagree, to keep silent, to say nothing, to have their conscience bound, which is what's happening when you're prohibited to speak your conscience. We, as the church of the living God, as male and female, are a new creation. And we confess that the old has gone, and that the new has come. And the old that has passed is not how God created us. The old that has passed is how sin has corrupted us. The old that has passed is how it has blinded us to the truth. And the new speaks of our restoration from the fall to our renewal after the, images and the image and purposes of God as he created us originally. And it's in living out this Reality, we are the new creation. We are in a nude creation that we show ourselves to be the pillar and the support of the truth in a very confused and antagonistic age. Well, how is the restoration of man and woman to be seen in God's household apart from marriage. And that's what Paul is addressing here. 
when he writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, I've only spoken of verse 13. I've only spoken of the creation. But to that verse, Paul also adds verse 14, which speaks of the fall. When he says, and Adam, this is another part of his reasoning, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he argues not only from creation, but he also argues from the fall. In Genesis 3, as you know, the serpent, Satan, came to Eve and he deceived her so that she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He had said that to Adam, but Eve makes it clear she knew that also because when he, the serpent originally comes to her, she basically recites what God had said to Adam. But in response to that word from God, Satan counters with, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And evil then, uh, Eve believes, uh, believes Satan, right? Eve, Eve took the fruit, she ate, and then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's Genesis 3, verse 6. Now here's the question. What was the immediate, visible result of that? The very next verse, Genesis 3-7. Genesis 3-7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In other words, the immediate impact was seen in the relationship of Adam and Eve to each other. Before, they were naked and unashamed. I mean, this was how God made them. But now, this goodness from God in making them in the way that he did no longer felt like goodness. Now they felt vulnerable, exposed, in need of some protection or barrier against one another. And as they partially hid themselves from each other with leaves, they tried to hide themselves completely from God under the cover of trees. That's the next verse, Genesis 3.8. So God comes and speaks. When God comes into the garden and he speaks, who does he speak to? Who does he speak to? Adam. He does not speak to Adam and Eve. He speaks to Adam. Genesis 3, 9, the next verse says, But God, but the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you, Adam? I made you. I placed you in the garden. I presented you with a helpmate perfectly suitable to you. Things are messed up. I left you in charge. Where are you? And God holds Adam chiefly responsible for what took place. The priority of leading and safeguarding the truth, that rested with Adam. And Adam had failed. Now, I'm going to say that although Paul writes in Timothy that Eve was deceived and not Adam, you have to understand 
that wherever Paul writes of original sin in the New Testament, he places the responsibility squarely on Adam. Six times in Romans 5, Paul names Adam or refers to him as the one man through whom sin and death entered into the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So when Paul underscores, as he does in our text, that Eve was the one deceived, not Adam, he was not saying that Eve was chiefly responsible for the fall. And if you think that by writing as he did, Paul was placing Adam in a position of moral superiority over Eve, you're mistaken. If you infer that a woman may not teach men because they're more gullible or less rational than men, you misread Paul badly. That was never his logic. If it had been his logic, he would never have commanded women to teach women, older women to teach younger women, or children, or anyone else, but he does. You know, Eve, Eve was sinned, it was, it was, Eve was deceived by the best liar ever. Smooth, beguiling, confident, believable. All it took for Adam to eat the forbidden fruit was for Eve to hand it to him. Adam was not being more rational and less emotional. Here was Paul's logic. This was his logic. Satan's intent in deceiving Eve was twofold. And we don't often focus on that, but it is very clear in the book of Genesis, even through the verses that I've cited to you. Not only was Satan's intent to overturn Eve's relationship with God, but to overturn her relationship with Adam as well. His intent was not only to turn them against God, but to turn them against each other by upending the order of creation. The deception of Eve extended beyond taking to herself what was forbidden. It extended to giving some to Adam. It extended to her asserting authority over him that God had not given her. That's very important. And in partaking himself, Adam consented. And Adam failed God. Now Paul writes as he does about Adam and Eve, not only as the first man and the first woman, but as the archetypes or as the embodiments of all men and all women. He saw the deception of Eve as an issue in play in Ephesus and at Corinth, and I suspect everywhere else in this fallen world. If that was not the case, he would not have drawn the attention that he did to Adam and to Eve. And this finally brings us to verse 15. As Paul continues to speak of Eve, he says in the beginning of that verse, 
yet she will be saved through childbearing. Or you could read it, she will be saved through the childbearing. I don't think it really makes a difference. Now, what's he referring to when he says that? She will be saved through the childbearing. I think it's pretty clear he's referring to God's promise that a Savior would be born through Eve, would be among Eve's offspring. That sin began with her, but so would salvation. That God would restore honor to her, even as he saved her and the human race. It makes sense to understand the first part of verse 15 in this way. But then look at what happens in the rest of verse 15. Then Paul shifts from the singular she to the plural they in the same sentence. So it reads, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You say, what's Paul doing here? Well, it's very straightforward what Paul's doing here. He has just sacrificed good grammar. But why has he done that? I think that he's done that to make a point. That Eve embodies all women. And it is not childbearing itself that saves her or other women. It is persevering in saving faith. It's persevering in the faith and confidence and trust in God to bring or that he has brought in fulfillment the Savior, the Redeemer that we need. And that's what the language of continuing in faith and love and holiness is all about. It's what we call perseverance in the faith. That saving faith, true faith, justifying faith will lead to sanctification. It will lead to growth and grace. It will change us. It will transform us. We will be drawn closer and closer to God as a result. So I see in verse 15, Paul begins with Eve. He ends with all women. The central issue is the childbearing understood messianically. The personal issue is our perseverance in the faith. But then he adds also, doesn't he? After saying continuing in love, in faith, and love, and holiness, then he adds with self-control. Now that's interesting. Because holiness encompasses self-control, doesn't it? Why would he single out this particular aspect of holiness? And I think the answer is that if you go ahead and read through the rest of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you will see that Paul names as a principal issue at Ephesus the lack of self-control, and that it includes or that it encompasses women. In 2 Timothy, he will talk about false teachers going into the homes of weak-willed women weighed down by their sin and taking advantage of them, presumably sexually. So there was an issue at Ephesus, and I think the reason he points out, he underscores self-control, is exactly for that reason. He is essentially making a very pointed reference to the problem that was there. Well, that's the way I understand this passage. That's the way I understand what Paul is teaching. And why he said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. It's grounded in the creation. And that failure in that was seen in the fall. And in fact, it was part of Eve's deception that the man was to lead in worship and gratitude and praise to God. 
Not that the woman had to go through him to God, but he was to be the leader in that relationship and in that community. Well, why does Paul's instruction matter to us? And I want to offer three reasons why. Of course, I, I could just close this up and just say, well, because the Bible says so, and the Bible's true, which is accurate. But I want to flesh it out a little bit. We find our true identity as men and as women. We try and find our true identity as God's people in God's revelation to us, in the revelation that he's given to us. And we don't find our true identity anywhere else. And this is the case whether we're talking about controversial sections of Paul's letters or the ancient earliest chapters of Genesis. Folks, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the part of the Bible that is with a certain amount of hubris called pre-scientific today or the parts of the Bible in the New Testament that, that we find also with a good deal of hubris we label as controversial today. Folks, it is all God's inspired word and we are lost without it and there is nothing nothing being said in the world today nothing by which we can find ourselves apart from God's revelation we're going to be deceived about ourselves and we're going to make stuff up it's not that simple G.K. Chesterton wrote famous Catholic thinker he wrote, never take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. And the fences in Scripture were not put up to oppress us, but to protect us from evil and to keep us for God. That's the first reason. It's about knowing who we are. It's about knowing and living out who we are. But secondly, I think this passage is very important because we bring glory to God when we worship Him. As the men and women he created us to be. By ordering our worship after his word. Not just, you know, prayer or preaching or reading. Or, we order our how we worship. Who leads us in worship? How that's by ordering our worship after God's word. Because when we do, we are affirming the truth of creation we are affirming also the goodness of the creation. And we are displaying His image among us. And we are honoring His Word. And in all those ways, we are bringing glory to God when we worship Him as the men and women He created us to be. It's about the whole world. It's about the creation and its goodness, not just the truth about it. It's about his image being displayed in us, among us, as he intended. And then thirdly, I think we take this to heart because we are testifying to the world when we order our life as God's family after his word. We're testifying to the world. We are showing that there is a third way to live. It is the way of the kingdom of God. We reject the two ways of sin. We reject oppression. And we reject rebellion. We embrace the truth of the new creation in Christ. 
and we pursue the peace that is ours in Him forever. And those for me are very compelling reasons, no matter how controverted a passage may be, to take this to heart, to live it out, and be that people as Church of the Atonement in our day. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for this portion of your word. Um, it's, good to, it's good to be served, you know, choice meat. It's good to have to work our way around the bone. It's good to be challenged deeply, to think deeply, to review our presuppositions to think about our great God, whether He's truly great or not, whether He's a great creator or not, whether the creation's great because He's great or not, whether the status quo, the fall, is what we accept or not, whether we're being renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit under the gospel truth of Christ or not. It's good to be made to chew the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. All of us. Not just in this area when we talk about worship, leadership, or teaching in the church. Not just when we're speaking about vocation, calling, and identities, men and women. But in every area of life. Where is the Bible not controversial today? What truth of the Bible is held sacred and loved by all? No, Lord, you have called us out. We're the called out people, the ecclesia, people called out to be worshipers and to live and to worship in the spirit and in truth. So help us, I pray. And for my dear friends here who are not Christians, I pray that you'd be deeply at work in their hearts Heal them of the sins that have been committed against them. Heal them of the sins they commit. And really, when I say heal, I say, please bring them to Christ, to the Savior who loves them, accepts them, forgives them, will renew them, who give them eternal life. Make them what they never thought they could be, never even imagined or dreamed they could be. And Lord, help each of us to find our identity in Christ every day, to listen to His voice, and to no other. He made us. And we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.